So when I was uh, 12 years old, I'd had enough exposure to Christianity to believe in God and to know a little bit about God. I believed God was just, and I thought that if I was good, God would give me good, and if I was bad, God would give me bad. That was pretty much the extent of my belief system. And I didn't have enough understanding about God and who He was to help me face what I would face that year in grade seven. You see, in the three years leading up to grade seven, uh, I was homeschooled, and I came into grade seven not really understanding social dynamics very well, and I was a pretty sensitive kid, and I was an easy target. And so that year during year seven was one of the most difficult years of my life, uh, facing bullying, facing belittling. I remember um, struggling with this and just thinking, if I can just keep being good, maybe God will give me good. Maybe he'll deliver me. I remember crying out to God throughout that year saying, please, just would you stop this? Would you please deliver me from the bullying? But by the end of the year, nothing had changed. Uh, the bullies continued to prosper and I continued to drown. And so I walked away from God. I believed he was just, but I couldn't see his justice. And I couldn't see how he was for me. I couldn't deal with what was happening. And I wonder if you've got a resonance with any part of that story. Maybe you've experienced injustice and you've made, it's made you wonder whether God really is just. Or maybe you've looked around at this suffering in our world and you wonder whether God is real. Maybe you're on the fence about God. Maybe you've chosen to walk away from God like I did before. If that's you, then you're here on a good day because we're opening up 1 Kings chapter 21. And our passage is going to help us understand how God feels about injustice and how he plans to deal with it. In our passage, we're faced with an injustice far worse than belittling or bullying. Uh, we're going to witness the strong preying upon the weak. We're going to witness the wicked triumphing over the righteous. And we're going to learn about how God plans to deal with it. We're in a sermon series at the moment exploring the Old Testament book of First Kings called The Life and Times of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. He delivered God's message to God's people during particular, particularly dark days for the people of God. The people of God had gone through civil war. They'd split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Elijah ministered in Israel in the north, where a man named Ahab was king. He was one of the worst kings in Israel's history. And he was married to an evil woman named Jezebel, a pagan from Sidon. And together, they led the people of God astray. Now today, Elijah only features at the end of our chapter. Uh, in fact, Elijah is only mentioned three times in this story, whereas a man called Naboth is mentioned 19 times. He's going to take center stage in this story today as we consider who he was, what was done to him by King Ahab, and how God responds. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings, and in the first section, we see the Word of God revered. The Word of God revered in verses 1 Three. So the chapter opens up, King Ahab is in his palace and he's looking across his land and he sees a, a vineyard next door that he likes the look of. 
maybe he's been looking through some Bunnings catalogs or something, but he's got this inspiration to start a veggie garden. And so he, he goes over to the, veggie, to the vineyard and he talks to Naboth and he says, hey, you know, I'd really like your vineyard. Why don't I give you a better one? You know, an ocean view. Maybe you can have a penthouse in the city of Samaria somewhere. I, I can give you something better for this or if you wish, I'll, I'll pay you some money. But how does Naboth respond? Naboth says, the Lord forbid that I give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now, what's going on here? Is Naboth stupid or stubborn? Like this is the king of Israel. He's not a very nice man. He's giving a fairly generous offer and Naboth refuses. What's going on? Is he a bit like Daryl Kerrigan from The Castle? Uh, I don't know, who's, who's seen this movie before, The Castle? It's an Aussie cinema at its finest. Uh, so in The Castle, the Kerrigan family are a typical Aussie battler family. And living right next to the airport, never seemed to be a problem for them until the airport decided to expand onto their land. And it's at this point, Daryl Kerrigan puts his foot down and is determined to fight for a piece of land that most people would have been glad to get rid of. Is that what's going on here? Is Naboth a Daryl Kerrigan? Well, no. I just wanted to work the castle into the sermon somehow. Uh, Naboth is not like Daryl Kerrigan. In fact, we kind of understand his character when we look at verse three, where he says to Ahab, the Lord forbid. It's not a personal thing to him or a stubborn thing. He says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. You see, in Numbers 36, God actually commanded Israel that no inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another. For every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. So Naboth's not being stubborn or stupid. He's actually being faithful. He revered God's word. He knew what God's word said about this. It wasn't a personal thing. It's just that he wanted to obey God. The Lord forbid that he should give his land to Ahab, even for a better offer. Naboth understood who Ahab and Jezebel were. He knew they didn't love God. They didn't care about God's word. He probably heard them shouting at each other in the palace nearby or whatever. He knew the kind of people that they were. And yet courageously, he said no, because he wanted to honor God. And this is where Naboth is a shining example to us. Naboth stood with God despite the tempting offers from Ahab and despite the positional power Ahab had over him. Just like Naboth, God wants us to revere and to honor his word and to stand with him despite the pressure and temptations we face to compromise. Maybe you're a young person and you're being teased for being a Christian. Don't compromise. Stand with God, honor his word. Maybe you're in a career where if you just threw a few people under the bus and sort of put yourself forward, you'd just get promoted like that. Don't compromise. Stand with God, honor his word. Maybe your family think you're weird because you come and gather with Christians every Sunday. Don't compromise. Stand with God, honor his word. Naboth revered God's word. He's a righteous example to us in this passage. But did that mean everything went well for Naboth? You know, he was so faithful, so courageous to take this stand. Maybe some of us might think that 
okay, he's done that, good on you, Naboth. God's gonna protect you now. He's gonna, he's gonna help you. He's gonna make sure that everything goes well for you. Well, let's dive into what happens next and find out in the second section where we see the word of God reviled. The word of God reviled. <clears throat> so Naboth says to Ahab, hey, look, God forbids that I give you this land. I can't sell it to you. Ahab doesn't think this is reasonable because he doesn't care a penny for God's word. He leaves, he's like this spoiled child. He's not gotten what he wants. He's, he's sullen, he's angry, he's sulking. He goes back to his palace. He opens up and slams his bedroom door and throws himself on his bed and he won't eat anything that's being given to him. And so his wife comes in and she says, what's going on? Why are you sulking? Why aren't you eating? And it's interesting, when you look at what he says, he actually twists the story a little bit. He says, well, I offered Naboth a vineyard for his because I wanted to build my veggie patch or whatever. But actually, what he had offered was a better vineyard to Naboth. It seems like he's a little bit scared of Jezebel. He doesn't want to tell her that he was being too generous to Naboth. And then he also tells her that Naboth said, well, I'm not going to give it to you, as if Naboth was personally saying, no, it's just a personal thing. Actually, Naboth said, the Lord forbid that I give it to you. And so he, he spins this story and Jezebel's not impressed. She's like, are you the king of Israel? Get up, cheer up, have something to eat. I'll get you this vineyard. She was, one of the, she was the daughter of the king of Sidon. She'd seen how the kings of the pagan nations had ruled over their people. She's gonna show him how to rule. And so she goes elsewhere, she grabs his royal seals and she writes up this plan and sends it to the elders and the leaders of Jezreel, men and, and, and people that were meant to be godly and honorable people. And so she writes down this plan and she says to them, hey, look, set this Naboth at this feast, at this fast, sorry, and accuse him falsely of doing something wrong and then kill him. So the elders followed her advice. They, they weren't courageous, they didn't stand against it. Instead, they set Naboth at the prominent place in this fast. Now, back in that time, when they declared a fast, it meant that they declared to the people that something had gone deeply wrong and we need to fast and we need to seek God together. And so they seated Naboth there and then these two false witnesses came forward and said, this man has cursed God and the king. And we don't get any sense that Naboth tried to defend himself. Perhaps he knew that this is where his faithfulness to God could lead. And he's taken out of the city and the people pick up stones and they throw them at him until he's crushed to death. That's what Naboth got for his obedience to God. It's pretty confronting. The two witnesses send word back to Jezebel and say that he's dead. And she rushes into Ahab's room and says, oh, get up, Naboth is dead. Quickly go and claim the land before somebody else can. And Ahab doesn't even seem to care how he's died or anything like that. He doesn't care. He just goes over and he takes Naboth's vineyard for himself. It's a confronting story. Naboth was righteous. Naboth revered God's word and stood with God. And what did he get? Death and dispossession. In fact, in the second book of Kings, we find out that they put all of Naboth's sons to death as well, the possible heirs who could lay claim to the land. This is a terrible, terrible injustice. Naboth revered God's word and did what was right. Ahab and Jezebel reviled God's word and took the land anyway. 
And there's an important lesson for us here. There's a lesson we must take on board. It's a lesson I hadn't learned yet when I was 12 years old. Obedience doesn't equal safety. Obedience doesn't equal safety. Being a child of God doesn't mean you won't experience injustice or suffering. In fact, being a follower of Jesus means that we will have trouble in this world. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to God's people. It doesn't matter how faithful we are, our obedience is not a shield from suffering and injustice. It's a hard lesson, but it's a lesson we need to take to heart. Because what will you do if you are faced with injustice? How will your faith handle that? What if your house is ransacked and burgled? What if a loved one dies far too young? What if you lose your job because of some sort of unjust circumstances? How will you respond? Have you accepted the hard truth that obedience to God does not deliver you from injustice or suffering in this world? Naboth courageously and righteously chose allegiance to God and he died for it. His life was extinguished, his children murdered, and his land was stolen. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor born in 1909. And he experienced his fair share of suffering and injustice. Uh, Under the communist regime there, he spent 14 years in prison, enduring terrible tortures and harsh conditions as they tried to get him to cooperate with them and to join the state-run Red Church, the communist church. And later he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. And he tells a story of how he prepared young Christians to suffer for their faith. He, He wrote this, he said, I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to a church, but to the zoo. Before the cage of lions, I told them, your forefathers in the faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you also will have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to do with men who would be much worse than lions. Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. They had tears in their eyes when they said yes. See, as Christians, we will suffer. Obedience doesn't equal safety. Being a child of God doesn't mean you won't experience injustice. It's a hard truth. It's a difficult lesson, but we need to accept it lest trouble comes our way and we don't know how to handle it like I couldn't handle it in grade seven. But thank God that isn't the end of the story. Relief does come, and injustice does not have the final word. And we see this in the third and final section, the word of God in response. So God gives Elijah a word to bring to Ahab, and we get to see God's heart as he saw this situation unfold now. This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man, Ahab, and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. God was angry. He was angry 
at the injustice that was done. He judged Ahab and Jezebel and promised to bring their evils back upon their own heads. Naboth died outside of the city, discredited and dishonored. Ahab will die in dishonor. Dogs will lick up his blood too. Naboth's children were killed. Ahab's children would be killed. God's word responds with justice. Now, lest you feel sorry for Ahab, remember the kind of king he was. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. You see, God is not flying off the handle in a rage as he issues this word of judgment. He is angry at evil, he hates injustice, and he is committed to giving Ahab and Jezebel a punishment which fits the crime. The word of God to Ahab was a word of justice. And I just want to bring that to bear on your heart today. If you're here in this room and you're carrying a weight because of some injustice that was done to you, or you're carrying a weight because you see what happens out there in our world, you hear about all the victims of war, you hear about the little ones victimized by child abuse. You hear about all the countless sufferers of our world and you're weighed down. Can I just say to you that this passage teaches us that God sees the injustice. God hears what happens and God cares. He is just. He will do justice in his perfect timing. Every wrong will be righted. Our God is a God of justice. But there's something surprising at the end of our passage. There's a twist. You see, first of all, Ahab, a man who normally reviles God's word, actually takes it to heart for once. He hears the word of judgment and he tears his clothes, he fasts, he walks about humbly. That was surprising. But perhaps even more surprising is the fact that at this small moment of being sad, of repentance, God extends mercy to the most wicked man in Israel's history, one of the most. If there was a, a social media post with a video of Ahab walking around, tearing his clothes, and, and he's sorry and whatnot, I don't think our culture would respond in the same way that God does. Maybe some of us wouldn't respond the same way God does. Maybe we'd say, oh, so he should, serves you right, mate. So what, you, you killed a man and you're sorry for it. Or if it's Daryl Kerrigan from the castle, he might say, suffer in your jocks, Ahab. It's a great line from the movie if you get a chance to watch it. We don't live in a culture of grace. We're not used to it. That's why it's so surprising when God says, because Ahab has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Some of us might want to say, excuse me, Lord, like this guy has done so much evil and he just starts to show he's sorry and boom, you're giving him mercy straight away. What is going on here? Well, 1 Kings 21 teaches us that God is committed to doing justice, but eager to give mercy. God is committed to doing justice, but eager to give mercy. This is who God is. He gives justice and mercy to Ahab. 
But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's just be clear on what God has said. The judgment hasn't been canceled. It's been postponed. So justice will still come. God may have chosen to cancel the sentence if Ahab's repentance was real, wholehearted, and lasting. But if you read ahead, you will see that this is just a moment of sadness, but nothing changed, and he continued on in his unjust ways. It's worth saying, though, that even at the slightest humbling by one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history, God extended some mercy. As sinners, we need to know that this is God's heart, that his heart is full of mercy and full of grace. God is excited, poised, and ready to give grace to those who humble themselves. He's not reluctant. It's his deep joy. It just flows out of his heart to those who come to him in humility. This is what brought me back to God later on in high school. When I heard the gospel and I finally understood what Jesus had done for me, that's when I just became wholeheartedly a follower of Jesus again. I thought that I had to keep being good for God to give me good. And that was an exhausting treadmill. I just couldn't keep it up, so I gave up on God. But once I heard and realized that Jesus had been good for me, that Jesus had taken the penalty that my bad, my evil had deserved, that through faith in Jesus, trusting in him, I didn't need to prove myself to God anymore, but I could receive his love and become his son by grace. I'd found what I'd been looking for. I'd found peace. I'd found a safe place and assurance and God's love in my life. I wonder how deeply God's grace has gone in your heart. I wonder if there's something that you've done in your life, maybe a sin or whatever, that you feel deeply ashamed about and you just think God couldn't forgive that. I wonder if there's a habit in your life or an addiction that you think God has finally gotten sick of me. I can't, he's not gonna love me anymore. Do you think that the same God who extended mercy to one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history at just some small signs of repentance will turn away one of his children who comes to him humbly? No way. Grace is just pouring out of his heart. When we come to him humbly in faith and just say, this is what I did, this is what's happening. He doesn't, he's not reluctant, he's wholehearted in extending grace and mercy and helping us to move forward in our life with him. So I just wanna encourage you, if you're in that place, know God's heart is full of grace. He's eager to give mercy as just as much as he is committed to doing justice. This is what we learn about God in 1 Kings 21. But you know, there's still a tension in the story that hasn't been resolved. What about poor old Naboth? You know, Ahab and Jezebel are going to get their justice eventually, but Naboth is dead. He was murdered, his children were murdered, his land was taken. How did he get any justice? It's situations like that that can make us question whether God really is just. Is Jesus just sort of sitting up there on the throne, indifferent to the Naboths of this world? Well, my answer is, how could he be indifferent when he was one of these Naboths? 
You see, just like Naboth, Jesus suffered unjustly. God in the flesh, Jesus, took the part in the story that was totally unjust. He could have written the triumphant part for himself, but he took the place of a Naboth. And just like Naboth, Jesus revered God's word. He was totally committed to his father, even if it got him into hot water. Just like Naboth, Jesus was falsely accused by two witnesses at his trial before the chief priest. Two unworthy men got up and agreed to twist his words so that the wicked leaders could have their way with him. Just like Naboth, Jesus' very life was extinguished. He was taken outside of the city, but he wasn't stoned to death. Instead, he was put to death in a way that the Roman mind had imagined, the cruelest way that they could think of to utterly shame someone. It was, this, it was the death of a slave in that time. Jesus was like Naboth. Is Jesus sitting up there on the throne indifferent to the Naboths of this world? My answer is, how can he be? He was one of these Naboths. And more than that, his whole life was full of justice and compassion for the helpless. And his father wasn't indifferent to his righteous suffering either. Jesus wasn't forgotten or despised by the Father. Injustice wasn't the final word in Jesus' life because God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. Psalm 22 was a psalm that Jesus quoted while he was dying on the cross. It explores the pain of a righteous sufferer. But it doesn't end with suffering and why. There's actually an Easter moment in the psalm where the righteous sufferer changes his tone and he speaks about how God has not let injustice have the last word. And he says this, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry. God did not ignore his son's suffering. God did not ignore Naboth's suffering. God raised Christ from the dead and God will raise Naboth from the dead too. And on that day of reckoning, everything will be called to, to account, wickedness will be judged and Naboth along with all of God's people would not just receive back what they lost, but far more. Naboth won't just get a vineyard back he'll receive and inherit the entire new creation in the sunlit glory of God's presence for all eternity. God will work out justice in his timing. I think we just need to take that in this morning. Do you see God's heart for justice for people like Naboth? Jesus knows what it is to be a righteous sufferer and Jesus will return to judge evil. And all those who have suffered in Christ will receive back what they lost plus infinitely more for all eternity until the memories of even the most grave injustices become like little flickering memories in their minds. Have you faced injustice? Jesus has too. Are you pained by injustice in our world? Jesus is more. And he won't let it go on forever. One day, he will right every wrong and wipe every tear from the eyes of his people.
So let's pray and seek him now. Jesus, we just thank you that you are just. If there was anyone that we could trust with doing true justice in our world, it is you, Jesus. You're the one who experienced the most grave injustice and yet forgave your enemies. You're the most loving, selfless, just, good, compassionate person who exists. And we just thank you that you see our pain. And Father, I just want to pray for those this morning who are just really struggling with suffering or the reality of injustice. Please help them to trust your heart, to see your heart beating for them at the cross, that you have not remained distant, but you entered into our suffering. You went through the worst of it for the sake of people who didn't deserve it, people like us. And Father, I just want to pray for those who are here this morning and they're weighed down by their own sin. They think they aren't forgivable. But would you just show them that your heart is eager to give grace and mercy? Just draw them to yourself right now, Lord. Help them to trust and trust themselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray.